We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 all the way through verse 11. And we're going through a series on 2 Corinthians. Um, so let me read out loud. You know, I had an idea maybe to make a service a little bit more uh, participatory. Um, maybe we, uh, we used to have uh, people in the church read scripture. Uh, maybe we go back to that. And I don't know if technologically we can like stream in people from Zoom and then maybe even the Zoom folks can read on uh, the scripture, but uh, something to uh, keep in mind. Uh, and if I send you an email asking you to read scripture, um, just say yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Uh, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. This is the word of the Lord. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you just for this time. And, um, you know, as we were, a couple of us were praying before, uh, the one thing that we know we need is, you know, we need to strive for your rest. Uh, we need to uh, know your presence, experience your presence. We need to uh, be filled by you. And uh, perhaps we're, many of us uh, are in a place where we feel empty, or uh, maybe if, even if we don't feel empty, uh, there are other things that we feel filled by, uh, which will um, ultimately prove to be counterfeits. And we want to be filled by uh, something of real substance, which uh, ultimately will be you. And so in this time, as we hear your word, uh, fill us with uh, your word and fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are going through this series on uh, 2 Corinthians. And basically the reason why uh, I wanted to go through 2 Corinthians is because uh, it focuses on this uh, theme of weakness. And I, as I mentioned, this is probably one of the most personal letters uh, of the Apostle Paul. Uh, because he's engaged with this very personal conflict with this church, and this church has caused him to shed tears, uh, along with have these periods of restlessness and anxiety. And I think part of what makes the book challenging, um, at least to understand or study, is that we don't exactly know the details about what happened. Uh, all we have are some clues in which we can infer uh, as to what's been happening here. So, for example, I think we could confidently say that there were people in the Corinthian church that questioned the authenticity of Paul's apostolic ministry. Uh, we also know that Paul had some pretty severe things to say to them in a previous letter that we don't have access to, so we don't know the contents of that letter. But upon writing that letter, it was a very painful thing for the Corinthians to, uh, to receive, to hear. And uh, the way Paul responds, I think, to this conflict with the Corinthians uh, it has a lot to teach us about the implications of the gospel. Uh, I've said in, in the past that I, I prefer that word implication as opposed to application because, you know, the word application, I don't have a huge problem with application, but, you know, the word application uh, can seem as though um, ultimately we have to apply something that we know to our lives and therefore power resides within our will. And, uh, you know, part of that might be true, but the term implication, it tells us that if we believe something to be true, 
then uh, by implication, it ought to lead to certain things in our lives or certain ways of living our life. And so today we are going to look at some of those implications. Now, to start, let me state something that's very obvious. And the very obvious point is this. People are not perfect. <laughs> people are not perfect. Uh, the way the Bible would say it is people are sinners. That doesn't mean we are entirely evil, but what that means is evil has touched everybody uh, to some degree. And therefore, if people are sinners, it goes without saying that people are going to eventually offend one another and hurt one another. And if that is going to happen, then we do need some mechanisms to address this. We need some mechanisms to address our sin. And this passage, it gives us two of those mechanisms, discipline and forgiveness. So we'll look at those two things. Now, as I've mentioned, we don't know the exact circumstances of this letter, uh, but it appears as though there's somebody in this community uh, who has caused a great offense. And this offense was so great that it not only caused great pain to the community, but eventually this community had to decide to uh, dole out some kind of punishment to him. Now, there's a lot of theories about like what happened and who this person is. So we have the letter of 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians 5, that's one of the places where the Bible talks about like church discipline. And uh, there's a, a man in there who committed a sin that's so egregious that even the pagans wouldn't accept it. And basically, he's uh, engaged in this incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And so Paul says to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. And uh, again, it's one of those passages that we usually turn to to understand discipline and to see how it's supposed to work and the why, uh, whys of why we would do it. And so some people think Paul's referring to that man when he talks about uh, the person who's been punished enough so that so the Corinthians should turn to forgive him. Uh, but I, and a lot of the more uh, modern commentators, uh, they don't think that's the man Paul is talking about here, but rather the person that Paul is talking about here is probably someone who rejected Paul's uh, authority and maybe staged some kind of rebellion against the apostle. Uh, one commentator thinks that this person was probably someone who was you know, more affluent and more um, in a privileged social class and therefore had more power and more influence and used his influence to divide the community by shaming those who were still loyal to Paul. And that's why Paul's making clear uh, that this person ultimately didn't cause him pain even though, right, he's trying to lead a rebellion against Paul. But Paul's saying, no, this person didn't ultimately cause me pain. This person is uh, causing pain to the community. This person's damaging the entire community. Now, as a result, <clears throat> uh, some kind of discipline was implemented upon this person. And it, this passage doesn't necessarily talk about discipline in an explicit way, but it's there implicitly. So uh, in chapter 7, we get a little bit more information where Paul thought, the discipline that they implemented on this person, it showed how they, the community was innocent in this matter, uh, meaning they weren't complicit in this matter. And that tells us discipline is not done uh, simply for uh, the purposes of the individual, although that's included, but discipline is done because it reflects the standards of the entire community. So in other words, had the Corinthian church allowed this person to continue on to divide the church uh, by rebelling against the Apostle Paul and challenging his apostolic ministry and authority, then uh, Paul is saying, you know, your tolerance of it would have ultimately made you complicit in the matter. Now, I know with respect to issues today, like social injustice issues, uh, the concept of complicity has come up a lot. And, you know, whether it's in regard to, like, you know, racial uh, injustice or 
mistreatment of women or those sort of things. You know, people are recognizing if you see something wrong and if you don't say anything about it, then you kind of participate in a system, right? You, it makes you complicit in allowing those wrongs to continue. Uh, I don't want, really want to think about it on like that big of a level, like the macro societal level, uh, because it gets a little bit more complicated. But rather what I want to do is I want to shrink the scope a little bit and just think about it in the context of a family, okay? After all, I think the church community is more resembling of a family. Uh, so let's think about how discipline works in a family unit. Now, when my wife ta and I talk about how we want to parent, how we want to raise our kids, inevitably, we have conversations about discipline. You know, uh, why? Because discipline is going to reflect our standards uh, for what we think is acceptable or unacceptable in our household. And by the way, when I use the word discipline, I don't necessarily mean like punishment, so not necessarily the negative form of discipline. Uh, sometimes it could mean punishment, but discipline is just kind of uh, the way we train our kids. Uh, when we say a word to them, a word of correction, what we teach them, what we say is something uh, that they ought to be doing or not be doing. So for example, if one of our kids like blatantly lies to us, we address it because we don't want them to think lying is okay, right? We don't want them to think lying is tolerated. And that's how discipline works, and that's why it's so important. Uh, if you don't address it, if you continue to tolerate it, then basically uh, what you're saying is uh, that's okay. And uh, as a parent, then in a way that makes you participants or complicit in their lying because you fail to discipline it. Now, we don't often talk about discipline in the church. Unless you take membership class, it's probably one of the few places you'll hear about it. Uh, but I think my guess is most people don't think about discipline or they don't think uh, discipline belongs in the church at all. And uh, if you take the class, you're going to see that discipline, again, is not just a negative thing, uh, not necessarily the negative formal uh, extreme kind like excommunication, but discipline can be a form of teaching or a word of counsel or, um, uh, or even like anything that has to do with training or teaching. So I guess even preaching or teaching in that sense is kind of a way of disciplining. But uh, even so, people will probably not think discipline belongs in the church. After all, uh, people would say, you know, who, who are you to tell me how to live my life, right? I've never personally had to bring any kind of discipline to uh, someone in the church, and uh, I'm thankful for that, and I hope uh, I don't have to. But I've talked to actually plenty of pastors who have been through that experience and that process, and it is always sad it is always difficult. Uh, usually the extreme like formal kind of discipline happens when the sin is like very egregious uh, and the person is not repentant of it. So for example, uh, if there's some kind of ongoing abuse in a relationship or if there's uh, a spouse engaging in an adul adulterous affair and refusing to give up that relationship, right? Those kinds of things. Now, none of those things have uh, come up yet uh, for me and hopefully uh, it won't here. Uh, but most of the time what happens is that person, instead of like finishing the disciplinary process, you know, in today's day and age, you just leave the church, right? It's so easy to leave the church and uh, you potentially go to another church. And so uh, it's easy to think, some people think, would say, well, what's the point of doing it at all? It doesn't really yield anything for that person. And I would agree, you know, maybe it doesn't yield anything for that person, but I still think it matters for the community because it's saying to the community, this is a kind of sin that is not tolerated, right? Uh, if the church community didn't say anything about those kinds of things, then the church would be complicit in allowing those sins to occur. 
And I think that's something of what uh, Paul is saying here, why he's so hard on the Corinthians in terms of why they should have disciplined this person in that previous severe letter and even in 1 Corinthians 5. But of course, that's not the only reason for discipline. It's just one reason for it. And if you look in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul wants the man of the, uh, who has this incestuous relationship with his father's wife to be disciplined so that ultimately his spirit can be saved. Um, so part of discipline is to reclaim that individual sinner. But also in that passage, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the entire lump. Uh, what he's talking about, even if you have a little yeast in the dough, it will still permeate the entire lump of dough. And similarly, if you tolerate sin in a community without disciplining it, he's saying it is going to permeate the entire community. So uh, that's discipline, the mechanism of discipline. Now, while discipline is necessary, the other side of it is it can be really dangerous and destructive when you don't have that second mechanism, which is forgiveness, okay? Without forgiveness, then the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of holiness, it is going to lead to people's destruction rather than to their restoration. And if the gospel shows us anything, God is not interested in the destruction of people, but he's interested in their restoration. He wants them to be redeemed. In our culture, I think there is a spirit maybe that cares you know, a little bit more about the destruction of a person rather than the restoration. And I know this is like a, I don't know, this might be a buzzword or a controversial word, but uh, I don't necessarily want to use the phrase cancel culture because I'm not exactly sure uh, what it means or what it is. Uh, but all I'll say is I, I do think there is this kind of spirit uh, in our culture that uh, would prefer to just destroy a person and outcast a person who is caught in sin rather than to, to restore them. And, uh, you know, I read this quote from John Calvin, who was like a, um, a you know, a theologian uh, from the 16th century. And uh, in one of the commentaries, this is what he says. He says, there are many noisy scolders who display an amazing fervor in denouncing and raging against other people's faults, and yet are untouched at heart so that they seem to take pleasure in exercising their throat and lungs. And when I read that, I was like, you know, there's no Twitter in John Calvin's time, but he's exactly talking about these Twitter trolls, right? <laughs> Who love to denounce everybody and like kind of exercise their voice uh, to denounce people. Now, those who seek to destroy a person, of course, you're not entirely off base because sin is a bad thing and sin should be dealt with, uh, sometimes in a disciplinary fashion. But the problem is not necessarily a desire for righteousness or justice. The problem is there are no paths for restoration. There's no grace. There's no forgiveness. There's no mercy. Forgiveness creates that path. But we should also understand that forgiveness will be very painful, will be very messy, and it will be very difficult. You know, forgiveness is nice as, this, uh, as a concept, but I think in a world where you just think about real pain and real hurt, forgiveness is hard, right? And in fact, to some, even suggesting forgiveness can be really offensive because there is this tension between uh, forgiveness and righteousness or maybe forgiveness and justice. We want what is right and fair and sometimes forgiveness seems to violate that. Uh, we'll show how that tension is resolved a little bit later, but I think we should be honest with how difficult forgiveness can be. Uh, what does it mean to forgive someone? Well, here in the text, Paul tells the Corinthians to forgive uh, this person, 
And then he says to comfort him, right? Then he begs them to reaffirm their love for him. Now, if you thought forgiveness was simply saying, all right, I'm just not going to retaliate against this person, then I think your notion of forgiveness might be challenged here because Paul is not simply saying, just don't retaliate against this person, right? But he's actually saying, I want you to comfort this person because this person is in deep sorrow as a result of probably the discipline. And I want you to reaffirm your love for this person. And the reason he's telling them to comfort him, again, is because he has been so deeply grieved by his sin as a result of the discipline, which seems to be like what Paul's talking about in chapter 7 again when he talks about how godly grief leads to repentance. In response to his sorrow over his sin, uh, the church community should comfort him and reaffirm their love for him. And that's, that's a lot more than saying, well, just don't retaliate against him, right? But there's another aspect of forgiveness that I think that's interesting here, and it's, it's almost like a throwaway line, but in verse 10, Paul says, you know, indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And when I first read that, I was like, what does he, what does he mean by that phrase, if I have forgiven anything? I didn't quite understand what he meant by that. Uh, but it seems to be, he seems to be saying something to this effect, you know, um, I don't even remember what I've forgiven of this person because I already forgave it and I've, I've moved on, I've moved past it, right? There's, it's kind of as if he's saying, I've already forgotten, right, what this person has done to me. There's this phrase that says, forgive and forget. And uh, I never really considered the forget part because how do you forget some, something that you've been deeply hurt by, right? I always assume when you forgive something, uh, of course, you're always going to remember what that person did to you and, and that offense. And so I, I had to wrestle with this a little bit personally because uh, it wasn't something that made uh, complete sense to me. But I don't think it's so much that Paul is saying, uh, I lost memory of what this man did. Uh, but I think what he's saying is like, in his extension of forgiveness, he is writing as though it's not even something he chooses to think about anymore with respect to this person. Uh, I think it's a bit like this, you know, uh, if someone hurts you, let's say they lie to you, okay, and, and you're really hurt by, by that lie, uh, there's a tendency that we can make that person's identity one with their sin, and therefore it's not somebody who lied to us, but now this person becomes a liar, and the lens through which we view this person is they're a liar, and we brand them uh, according to their sin. So it's a little bit like, you know that novel, uh, The Scarlet Letter, where uh, we remember their sin in a way that brands them, uh, that makes us always remember their sin. And for the person who gets branded, what happens? They become a pariah in the community. They are no longer welcomed in the community because everybody in the community views them through this lens in spite of their repentance. But that wouldn't be a community, I think, that displays the dynamics of the gospel, which is why that forgetting part is actually a part of forgiveness. Uh, it's almost a way of saying, I'm not going to brand you forever. I'm not going to brand you and make your identity to be one with your offense. Uh, by the way, I should say this too. I am not saying there, there aren't caveats or exceptions or even complications. Uh, if someone is a danger to others in the community, I'm not saying you forego like common sense or wisdom and you allow them to continue to be in a position where they can endanger the community. Um, yeah, I think even a couple months ago or a couple weeks ago, we prayed for a church and there was a death threat, right? That, I'm, I'm not talking about those kind of situations. Uh, generally, if it's a sin that poses no uh, danger to those who are vulnerable, right, especially to children, 
Uh, then Paul seems to be saying, receive them back into the community, reaffirm your love for them, and uh, quote-unquote, forget their offense against the community so that they can be free of their shame. Otherwise, what is the alternative to that? If you say, I forgive this person, but I just can't forget what they did to me, you know what that's really saying? That's saying you won't retaliate against a person outwardly, but in your heart, you do. Why? Because you still hope bad things happen to that person. Maybe you hope, I hope maybe you say, I hope other people see this person for who they really are and uh, don't become friends with them, right? Uh, maybe you say, I hope this person doesn't receive encouragement or gifts because they certainly don't deserve it after what they did to me. And that's not really forgiveness in your heart because your heart is still holding their sin against them and you're still saying this person needs to suffer more. This person needs to be punished more. And not only that, I do think that's the worst kind of forgiveness because it's a counterfeit form of forgiveness. It makes you think you have forgiven the person when in reality you haven't. And I can see Christian believers being the most susceptible to this kind of counterfeit form of forgiveness because Christians know, hey, I'm supposed to forgive people. Uh, but maybe we don't always do the hard work of actually doing the forgiveness. So all I'm saying is this. Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is a very tall order. And depending upon the offense, it might seem virtually impossible to forgive. And yet without it, discipline loses its effectiveness because then it turns into a mechanism for destruction. Uh, so we need forgiveness along with discipline. Right? Discipline without the forgiveness is not a good thing because it leads to destruction. And the goal of discipline is not destruction, but it should be salvation, it should be holiness, it should be growth for both individual and community. But as I alluded to before, there is this like tension between forgiveness and justice. And let's just think of the situation that's going on here in this community. Uh, we'll, we'll use our imagination a little bit to fill in some of the gaps, but uh, <clears throat> so this person here uh, apparently acted out of the, his own self-interest, maybe with some arrogance, and endangered the spiritual health of this church. Uh, if you've experienced division in a church community that you love, you know the damaging effects that it can have. You know how much hurt it has. Uh, in Paul's day, I imagine division would have had a greater impact because there weren't as many churches back then and as many uh, Christian believers back then. What if this person's actions divided families? What if a father stopped talking to a son? Uh, what if he permanently damaged people's faith and ultimately people ended up walking away from the faith as a result of this person, right? What if some real damage had really been done whereby forgiving this person would seem like so difficult, right? Reaffirming your love for this person just doesn't seem to be fair. Comforting this person, what? Do you know what this person did to our, our community? But that's what I mean when I say there's this tension between justice and forgiveness. But you see, it's only when we understand justice and forgiveness through the lens of the cross, through the lens of what Christ has accomplished, that I think we're going to really be able to see both clearly and properly. Uh, one of the most useful ways to understand uh, the way forgiveness works for me uh, is this concept of debt in the Bible. Uh, when you sin against somebody, when you offend somebody, it creates this debt and someone has to pay it. Either the offender pays it or either the one who is offended pays it. Forgiveness is saying the offender is released from that debt and the one who is offended decides or chooses to pay for it. 
And there is this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18 uh, that is an answer to a question for Peter. And Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus' answer to uh, Peter is 77 times, which is kind of another way of saying, you know, you always have to forgive this person, right? And then Jesus tells this parable. I, I love this parable uh, in terms of what it teaches about forgiveness. The parable is about a king and his servants. And there's a king who's kind of settling accounts with uh, people who incurred a debt uh, from him. One uh, person owes him 10,000 talents, which is a ton of money. So I think in the parable, it's kind of saying this is an impossible debt to pay off, right? It's that much money. And the servant uh, who owes that much money to the king asks the, the king to be patient. And miraculously, what the king says is, I will forgive that debt. Or what does it mean? The king saying, uh, even though uh, you owe me this money, I'll decide to pay it by not forcing you to uh, pay that debt. That's what forgiveness is. Uh, it doesn't mean nobody pays a debt. It means the king pays a debt uh, for the servant by incurring the hit. Now, the first servant then encounters a fellow servant, right? A second servant. And this second servant owes the first servant money, a hundred denarii, which is much less than what the first servant owed the king. And the servant, second servant says, oh, please be patient, right? The same exact words of the first servant. And the first servant refuses to forgive that debt. The king hears about it. The king hears about this unforgiving first servant and says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? See, one of the reasons why the king expects the first servant to forgive the second servant's debt is because you know, the first servant received a much greater forgiveness on account of a greater debt to the king. In other words, the forgiveness of that greater debt gave that first servant a deep well of resources to, be, to draw from to be able to forgive that lesser debt. You know, imagine having a, a mortgage for millions and millions of dollars and then having that mortgage forgiven. In view of that, you can forgive somebody else's debt to you for like a couple hundred dollars, right? Because by virtue of having that huge debt forgiven, you now have a greater pool of resources, right? You are no longer in as great of a need for that money because that burden has been released of you. Um, I hope you can see where I'm going with this, right? On the cross, Jesus paid that incalculable debt for us. The stakes of our debt were much higher because as Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death, right? Our, our debt leads to spiritual death. That means being excommunicated from the presence of God and from his, uh, his household, from his family. It means being in this constant state of judgment and being eternally branded in sin and shame. But Jesus paid our debt upon the cross. He forgave us. He was the one who paid the debt by becoming exiled from the presence of his father and the father turning his face away from him. He was the one who got branded as a sinner. As Paul will say later on, we'll see, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And in view of that incalculable debt being forgiven, how can we not forgive others when such a great debt has been paid on our behalf? See, that cosmic forgiveness has given us the deepest well of resources to be able to forgive one another. 
And if anyone ought to be able to extend forgiveness to an offender, it should be the Christian community. Not because the Christian community is better, not because we're better people, but we have experienced a greater debt, an incalculable debt that has been forgiven, and therefore we have greater resources to be able to forgive others. To refuse to do so, right? <laughs> to refuse to do so would basically betray the very thing that we profess to believe about the gospel. It's only when you see Jesus that you will see justice and forgiveness properly. Because the greater injustice is not what someone has done to you. The greater injustice is what Jesus himself had to endure to pay our debt. Right? The greater injustice is refusing to forgive the debt of another in view of the incalculable debt that has been forgiven of you and I. You know, we all want um, wrongs committed to be disciplined, but we also need forgiveness so that discipline doesn't lead to destruction. Discipline should lead to greater life. And the way we achieve that, the way we accomplish that is uh, not through our own self-will or our own strength. Simply look to the cross. Look to the cross and see how Jesus forgave you of your debt. And there, find the well of resources to forgive one another. And as I said, we haven't had any like huge drama of egregious things, but I do hope like if there was something like that and someone did something egregious, but then uh, turned out to be really repentant about it, uh, I do hope we would be the kind of community that can show grace and uh, reaffirm our love for that person and not eternally brand that person, uh, make them one with their sin. But we would be a community that takes discipline seriously, yes, but takes forgiveness uh, just as seriously, if not more. Let's pray together. Uh, I, I actually, you know, I want to give you a few minutes to reflect and think about something. And, you know, perhaps there is, uh, you know, someone in uh, all of our lives where maybe we are struggling to, to extend forgiveness. And if that's the case, uh, my assumption is uh, it's not uh, a light thing, but it's, it was probably a deep hurt or a deep pain. And uh, those kind of things are the hardest to forgive. Um, you know, spend a little time asking God to, to help you. And uh, I think, you know, when we come to God in weakness and helpless and saying, you know, I can't force myself to do it. Um, I can't, um, it doesn't come from my own inner strength or self-will, uh, but it has to come from you. Uh, ask God to, to reveal to you in powerful ways uh, the incalculable debt that Jesus paid for you. And uh, ask him to, to touch your heart in such a way uh, that you'll find strength and power to be able to forgive in view of that. Let me give you a few moments, and um, maybe after a while, uh, I'll close in prayer. Uh, God, we know that you do have standards for us and that there are standards of holiness. And, you know, as people who follow Jesus, we want to... Um, be obedient to, to those standards. Uh, we want to live faithfully to you. Uh, but God, we also don't want uh, our pursuit of holiness to be a reason for uh, destroying others. And uh, sometimes uh, we, we certainly do get carried away and uh, discipline uh, 
ceases to be discipline when it becomes uh, punishment uh, without love and without the desire for uh, restoration. And so God, you've given us one of the greatest gifts, which is the gift of forgiveness in Christ. You have forgiven of us this incalculable debt. And what you had to endure, Jesus, in order to pay that debt is something uh, far more than uh, any dollar amount or dollar figure. But in that, God, you've also given us a well of resources to be able to extend forgiveness as you have extended it to us. And we pray, God, that we would be a forgiving people, that we would be a forgiving church community, that uh, if at any time we encounter egregious sin and you know, through grief and through sorrow and through your Holy Spirit, uh, there's deep repentance, that we would be quick to comfort, we would be quick to reaffirm our love, we would be quick to quote-unquote forget and to rejoice over um, you know, the restoration and growth of that person. Uh, shape us to be forgiving not only individually, but all together as well. Uh, all churches, uh, help all churches to form this counterculture uh, that rages against the spirit of de destruction, um, but that seeks to embrace uh, those who have been declared to be pariahs, uh, seek to love uh, and comfort uh, those uh, who might be outcasts um, because we have experienced such a deep love and forgiveness from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>